0: you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be focusing our attention in this part of our worship on this section in Hebrews. So it would be good for you to have a Bible open to that place, Hebrews chapter 9. Taryn, it's hard to preach after we sing that song. <clears throat> it makes me want to go real low, I guess, but uh, <clears throat> not that I can do that very well. Uh, appreciate Taryn and the work he's done in trying to focus our minds. As Taryn mentioned, uh, we're doing things a little bit different this morning because this is our fifth Sunday, and on the fifth Sunday of the month, the elders have decided that we're going to make that a focused service where we pay attention in a special way to the Lord's Supper. And so we have reworked and reordered our service to focus our attention on that, and after uh, these remarks, uh, the men will get up and serve us the Lord's Supper. And so In a way, what we're doing right now is sort of an extended table talk where we're going to think for a few minutes from this section in Hebrews about Jesus and His sacrifice and the things that that means for us. So I want to begin in Hebrews 9 and verse 11. Hebrews 9 and verse 11, the text says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What happened when Jesus died? You can answer that question in a lot of ways, and the writers of the New Testament do. You could talk about how he went into the tomb and he was raised on the third day. You could describe it as he bore our sins in his body on the tree, as Peter does. He took away the law of commandments and nailed it to the cross, Paul says in Ephesians 2. He made peace between Jew and Gentile. He opened up a new way of salvation. All of those are accurate, but... The Hebrew writer, if you were to ask him that question, what happened when Jesus died? He would picture that in terms of the Day of Atonement. That day in the Hebrew law, the law of Moses, in which sacrifices were made and atonement was made for the people. We often forget, because we don't live under the Mosaic system, that God did reveal a way for people to deal with sin through sacrifice before Jesus. And yet when Jesus dies, the Hebrew writer says this brings in a new way... ...and a new system of being right with God. And by definition, the fact that we needed a new way... ...means that there was something wrong with the old way. And that is something that the Hebrew writer says repeatedly. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews 7, the way he describes that failure in the old way or the law of Moses... ...is that the old way could not make us perfect. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 18. Hebrews seven eighteen, it says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside... ...because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced... ...through which we draw near to God. So the law made nothing perfect, he says. And so it was weak and unprofitable. It had to be set aside. It did not achieve its purpose. But that might make you wonder, well... How could God reveal a law that was weak and imperfect? I mean, God is God. How could He not know that that law would be weak and imperfect? But the Hebrew writer is actually making the argument that the problem was not with the law, but with us, the people who were trying to live by the law. Turn the page to Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8 and verse 6, Hebrews 8 and verse 6 he says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he describes the first covenant as full of fault. If it had been faultless, we wouldn't need a second. But look at verse 8. He says, For he finds fault with them. You see, the problem was not with the law. The problem was with the people who would not keep the law, who were unable to keep up with the law and therefore had no provision through which they could be made perfect. So the problem is not the covenant, and I don't want you to think anything like that as we go through our exercises this morning, that what God did was to bring something because the first time he tried, he didn't get it right, and the second time he did. It is rather the first time we couldn't do it right. And so the second time, God made special provision for our imperfection. Turn with me to Hebrews 9 now, in verse 9. He goes on to say this, Hebrews 9 and verse 9. It is symbolic for the present age, and according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What he says here is vitally important. He says that that old system cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience is the problem. The conscience is that part of us that tells us whether something is right or wrong. It tells us that prospectively as we consider an action. Am I going to do this? Is it right or wrong? And it tells us after the fact, when we look back and we say, I should not have done that. And our conscience accuses us in those moments. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is, no matter how many sacrifices could be offered, none of those sacrifices could purify the conscience. We still knew, no matter how many animals we killed and offered, that we had done wrong. We did not feel right about our sin. So if we were to ask the Hebrew writer, what happened when Jesus died? His answer would be, Jesus finally purified the conscience. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes in this part of our worship. I want us to examine a couple of reasons why that is true, and I want us to track with the Hebrew writer's argument through all of this. So the first thing he would say is that the conscience can now be purified because we have a high priest who can purify us. The high priest is the one who goes in on behalf of the people in the Levitical system. He is, in a way, a representative and a mediator of the people who goes before God. And it is awfully hard to have confidence in your right standing before God when it hinges on a person. What kind of person is he? Is he a young guy who's too naive, doesn't know what he's doing? Or maybe he's brash and and cocky and arrogant. Or maybe he's an old guy. And you begin to say, well, is he... Has he lost it? Is he still with it? You know, And then there is always, whether they're good or bad, young or old, the idea of man, no matter what he is, he's going to die. And what happens to me and the things he has bargained for me before God when he is dead? There is a problem when we go to God through men. And that problem is that we need a better high priest... Look in Hebrews chapter 7. This is what is said about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. Now if perfection, Hebrews 7, 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, remember that, that term again, if we could have been perfect through that, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So he says the fact that Jesus has arisen as a new kind of priest, that is, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He is different from the other system, necessitates a lot. It means a lot. It means that we needed something better. It also means that that other system is done away with. Jesus proves we need something better. In verse 15 of Hebrews 7, Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek... ...who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent... ...but by the power of an indestructible life. Here is the argument. He is saying Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. But the reason Jesus can be a high priest is not on the basis of his family lineage. The reason he is a high priest is because he never dies... That is the argument with the idea of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, someone who in the text of the scripture has no beginning or ending. And so Jesus is like him. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that matters to you and me. Look in verse 23. In verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the main problem, as I alluded to earlier, is that the priests just kept dying. They were men. And they died and you get a new high priest and a new high priest and a new high priest. Can men really gain the favor of God for other men? That's the question. And it's a question that breeds tremendous uncertainty. It affects the conscience. Here is Jesus, though, he says, who can save to the uttermost. His office is always open. We can always go to God through him. And so he is able to completely say, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, But Jesus is not someone who serves in weakness. And so he doesn't have to go in and say, Here, Father, is the sacrifice for my sins and then for everyone else. He has no sin. He goes before God on our behalf as a high priest who can bring true purification. So if we're talking about purifying the conscience, and we are, the conscience is the part of us that accuses us when we are guilty. And what I am saying is our conscience is going to require that we feel that we are convinced that there is true purity in the one who is going before God for us. And Jesus is the only high priest who can do that, who goes not into the temple, but into heaven itself, not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood so that we can know we have a different kind of high priest than the one under the Jewish system. The second thing we have, according to the Hebrew writer, is we have a promise that God will purify us. A promise that God's going to do this. This is in Hebrews chapter 8. So let's look a little further here. Hebrews 8 and verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He is saying Jesus is there with God, in the presence of God, at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He says this, though, in verse 6. In verse 6 of Hebrews 8, As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So you see, he has a better ministry and a better covenant because it is based on better promises. And then he refers to the promise. So the promise that I'm going to talk about here, and the promise that the Hebrew, talks, Hebrew writer talks about here, begins in verse 7. It is a quotation from Jeremiah. I'm sorry, it begins in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I want you to notice that, by the way, in verse 9. He does not say he found, they found fault with him, but he found fault with them because they refused to continue. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here is the promise God made. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to do something new. And knowing what we know about the difficulty man had keeping the old covenant... We're thankful for that. And the new thing he says in verse 10, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He says in verse 11, They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. They won't need to be taught know the Lord. They will all know me. I believe that what is described here by Jeremiah is the idea that there is going to be a new way to be right with God that's not based on being born in the right place or to the right parents. It's not something where we we have to be taught about who we already are because it is something that we choose to believe in and submit to. We will know God because God will forgive our sins. And so he says there in verse 12, "...for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." He will truly forgive, and that forgiveness will be a game changer. And everyone who experiences that will be a part of his people and a part of that new covenant. God is going to do a new thing. That is the promise on which Jesus' ministry operates. That there is something new God is doing that is based on real forgiveness. I will remember their deeds no more a strong contrast to the old law, because under the old law, sins were remembered. We're going to touch on this more in a moment, but what I mean by that is that as sacrifices were continually offered year after year after year, there is proof in the continual offering that there was remembrance of sins. There was consciousness. We were aware That we had to go back and offer again and again and again. Something else was amiss in our relationship with God. And if we could just keep closing the gap again and again and again. And always that perfection, that purity, that conscience that we wanted to have. Was always one more step away. One more year away. One more thing away. Yet in Jesus, we see God's promise of a better way fulfilled. We see real forgiveness. We see real forgiveness forgetfulness of sin from God and from us. So when I see Jesus, I know I have the promise God has given me. And the third thing we have is we have a sacrifice that can purify us. The heart of his argument is that Jesus offers something that the Old Testament sacrifices all those bulls and goats could never really provide. Look in Hebrews 9 with me, beginning in verse 6. Hebrews 9 and verse 6. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Here the Hebrew writer describes the day of atonement. That day once a year, where atonement was made for the children of Israel. And he describes it as the priest having to go in, only the high priest into that holy place and only once a year and only with blood for his sins and blood for the people's sins. And he would approach God once a year and only him. He would bring the blood of a bull for himself and the blood of a goat for the people. And a Hebrew writer who probably had witnessed that scene so many times. The Hebrew writer says something powerful here. He says in verse 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered... ...that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That those things, as he watched them being done... ...he knew there was something missing... ...about how it affected the people... ...who were supposed to be cleansed by this. He said they could not perfect the conscience. And then he comes to Christ in verse 11. In verse 11 he says, "...but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here it all comes together. As high priest, Jesus does not go into the temple. He goes into heaven itself, into the true holy places. He does not take the blood of animals. He does not take the blood of goats and calves. He takes his own blood. He secures an eternal redemption. It does not need to be repeated every year. Every year, let's offer the sacrifice again and again and again. It is a once-for-all sacrifice because it achieves what all the sacrifices were trying to achieve, the true purity, not only of the body, but of the conscience. And he asked the question, you know, if animal blood did something for people to make them clean, how much more will the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, the Son of God, purify the conscience? Not just the body, not just ritual cleanness and uncleanness, but knowing that my sins are gone. Drop down to verse 23 of Hebrews 9. Verse 23 Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." So Jesus has gone into heaven himself with his, itself with his own blood to bring real purity. Look in chapter 10 and verse 1. Chapter 10 and verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered continually year, every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So since the law deals with shadows and copies and foretastes of the real thing, the sacrifices of the law are insufficient. And he argues if they had been sufficient, they would have stopped. No one would have offered them anymore. They wouldn't have felt guilty. They wouldn't have had a conscience that says, I need to do this because I have done wrong. That word in verse 2, in my version, it is the word translated consciousness, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It is our word, the word conscience. It is not just consciousness as we describe it, you know, where I am aware of something, but it is the word conscience, which means I am guilty. We have a conscience of sin. We are guilty before God. And that is what people who offered those sacrifices continually felt. We need a better sacrifice that can give real purity and not just the blood of bulls and goat's. In verse 11, he says, chapter 10 and verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, instead of standing like the priest, has sat down, his work is done. He does not continually offer. He has once for all offered. Because the sacrifice that can purify us has been made. Throughout this section, the Hebrew writer keeps using the word perfecting or being made perfect. And he says in verse 11, uh, verse 14 there, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I want to remind you that that word perfected is not just about being right with God. It is also about the conscience. Because as he said back in chapter 9, Those sacrifices could never perfect with regard to the conscience, could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So, what did Jesus do? Jesus offered a sacrifice that can finally settle our hearts a better priesthood based on better promises with a better sacrifice that can really cleanse. We can have in Him what we could have in no other way. Now, I understand a lot of this is technical. I understand a lot of it is dry reading. And perhaps we've never experienced seen an animal sacrifice, experienced the Jewish system the way a lot of these people must have. And so it is easy for us to kind of lose our bearings in texts like these. But what I want to remind you is we have the same problem they did. We have a conscience that tells us we have done wrong. And that we are guilty before God. And that conscience is what motivates us to come to God and say, I need help, I need a new way. We know what it is to try to make things better in our own way, with our own works. And we know the failure that that is. And we know what it is to turn to things that don't really help us. That may distract us for a little while. Or sometimes may be evil in themselves and make us feel worse when we're done. What Jesus offers is a path to true purity. I want you to read with me Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Hebrew writer invites us to come into the holy places where God is, into the very presence of God. Where God doesn't throw us out because we don't belong or we're unworthy, but because we have the blood of Jesus, we're cleansed. We belong here. And he tells us to do it in full assurance of faith, to come near to God. When people in the Bible come near to God, they're terrified, they're trembling, they feel unworthy. And yet here is a sacrifice that says, even though you feel unworthy, you are worthy, because the Lamb is worthy. He tells us, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The people were sprinkled with blood when the law was read. Aaron and his sons were sprinkled with blood and oil when they were set aside to their work. The idea of sprinkling is the idea of cleansing. And he says we can approach the presence of God because we no longer have a heart that accuses us. Our hearts are sprinkled clean. God has forgiven us. We are not the people we used to be. We are new creatures in Christ. And we can come into his presence in the confidence, not of ourselves, but of our Savior. He also says that our bodies are washed with pure water, just like the priests had ceremonial washings that they would do before they came into the presence of God. We have been baptized and washed in the water and in the blood of Jesus. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, we're in the presence of God. We enter in. And as we eat this meal together in remembrance of a God who loves us that much, we have to give thanks because we know we don't deserve any of this. That were we born in another time, before the coming of Jesus, we would have only yearned For what we now experience, we are blessed. We remember where we are in the presence of God as we commune with Him and with one another. We remember the guilt that we carried. We remember the pain of a guilty conscience. And we celebrate and sing the praise of the death that sacrifice that makes where we are right now possible. So I invite you to think about these things as we partake of the Lord's Supper, to proclaim His death until He comes again. I'll invite the men to come forward and serve us. We would open a Bible to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I appreciate so much the uh, effort that's been made this morning to focus our worship service and appreciate all those who Involved in the planning and execution of that. I appreciate all of you for worshiping God with me. It's been an encouragement to me. Uh, I have not said anything. I want to say this. I appreciate so much that we have visitors with us. Thank you for being here. We always want you to feel welcome. And we hope that uh, you've enjoyed being here and worshiping God in this way. We hope it's been beneficial to you. But most of all, we want it to be pleasing to God. And uh, we are thankful that you've joined us in doing that. This is also uh, the last time I'm going to have an opportunity to speak, so I want to say this. This is sort of in the realm of the public service announcement. But uh, starting on Wednesday night, I'm going to be teaching a marriage class in the back, and we're doing that for the next three months. And it's going to be each Sunday and Wednesday, uh, each Sunday morning at nine forty-five, each Wednesday night at seven, in the back classroom. And uh, that is a class that is not just for the newly married. It is definitely for the newly married. It is not just for those who have been married for, I don't know, 20 years or so, but it is definitely for those who have been married 20 years or so. It is not just for those who have been married for 40 plus years, but it is definitely for those who have been married 40 plus years. Uh, It is not just for those who haven't been married, but it is definitely for those who have not yet been married. Uh, I want everybody to come if you can, uh, because I think it will be an encouraging thing and we can grow together as we study God's Word and think about how we live out God's word in our marriages. Uh, all right, Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read verse 23, where the Hebrew writer applies some of the things that we've been talking about this morning. Hebrews 10:23. "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It would be a great tragedy if we were to think about all that we have thought about this morning, about our needs, the need of our conscience to be pure, the need for a sacrifice and a savior, and we have communed together as we've eaten the Lord's Supper and celebrated what Jesus has done for us, and then to leave unchanged by that would be a great tragedy. And so there are two things that the Hebrew writer says we need to focus our attention on, having thought these thoughts. The first of those has to do with, in verse 23, let us hold fast our confession without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast is a word we don't use very much. Um, We don't tell each other, come hold fast to me. Uh, We don't use that language, and so it's one that needs some interpreting. It is the idea of clinging. It's the idea of sticking to that we are going to keep our commitment to the Lord. And so this morning we have taken time to to still the voices of the world and to come into this building and to worship God together and to sort of renew who we are and what we're doing. And so I want to encourage you as you leave this building in this time that we've set aside to hold fast to the hope that you have without wavering because God has not changed. He who promised still remains faithful. He's going to do what he said he would do. And so we're going to have opportunities this week in our interactions with other people to represent the faith that we have and the hope that we have in Jesus, in our interactions with other people, in the way we use our time, whether we're willing to set aside time to think about God's Word, to study together, to pray to God. We're going to have opportunities to think about as we engage with the people of the world, the people in our workplaces and in our schools and in our families. We're going to have an opportunity to show that we are believers in Jesus or to show that we are not. And those are opportunities each day, each moment, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The other thing he tells us to do in verse 24 is to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is the idea that we think about other people and how we can make other people better, specifically our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to have an opportunity in a moment when the amens are said and we're, we're dismissed, We're going to have an opportunity to talk for a little while with one another and and see how we're doing and see what's going on in one another's lives. But those opportunities are not going to stop just because we're not together in this building. And we can at any moment think about, pick up the phone to encourage, go see one another and think about how we can make one another stirred up to love and good works, how I can encourage someone. That is a thought that comes from having communed with God and also having communed with one another. So he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That is, we need to be together so we can know one another and know how we can serve each other. But the command here is to consider, to think about. And so I want to encourage us as we leave this building, don't let this be the last time you think about your brethren this week. Don't let this be the last time you think about what's going on in somebody's life that you know about. How can you pray for them? How can you reach out to them? How can you serve them? through this week. And so I want you to think about these things. We have done an amazing thing in that we have communed with God and come into the very presence of God. And now the question is, where do we go from here? And the Hebrew writer gives us some directions. Let's hold fast our hope. Let's consider one another. There might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of the Lord, who is ready to have that sacrifice we've talked about and sung about and celebrated together, apply to them to have your conscience purified And if you're ready to become a Christian, to leave behind your sins and to be baptized into Christ, have those sins washed away, we'd love nothing more than to help you do that. Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.